UX Podcast Episode 275. Hello, I'm James Royal Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbell. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 200 countries and territories around the world, from Brazil to Greece. Almira Osmanovic Tunström is a doctoral researcher at the Institution for Neuroscience and Physiology at Gothenburg University, and she's also an organizational developer within the areas of brain-computer interfaces artificial intelligence, social robotics, and extended reality at Sahlgrenska University Hospital. Back in episode 186, we talked to Boone Sheridan about augmented reality. And at the end of that episode, um, back in 2018, Boone urged us to go and research about VR therapy. Boone said, the avenues that are open with AR and VR for therapeutic use are amazing. And I don't think they're talked about enough. It's such a good thing. So with that in mind, we've brought Almira onto the show to provide more insights into the work she's doing with VR in healthcare. What to look out for, new opportunities, uh, what the most common challenges are, uh, as well as some hopes for future developments in this relatively new tech space. Almira can speak no less than seven languages. But in this interview, we keep it to just English. We also, though, want to warn you that there is sensitive content in this episode that could be emotionally triggering, with references to both suicide and palliative care. So, Amira, uh, I've been following you for, for a few years now, and I've realized that you seem to be one of these people who just loves picking apart technology. So I imagine that you, as a kid, you're one of those people who went around the house just picking apart stuff. Uh, I don't know if it's that, that's an accurate description or if that interest came later on in life. That is a very accurate description. I would pick apart um, my parents' phone, my parents' remote controls, um, everything <laughs> that you can think of, because I was really curious about what was inside. And my dad is an electrician. He does that for a living. So I always thought that that doesn't look hard. Like my if my dad can do it. <laughs> mm. So I just picked it apart and tried to put it back together again. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Um, and my parents were really, really good with that. So they never discouraged me. They just tried to uh, eventually give me the right tool so I wouldn't electrify them. <laughs> oh, wow. That's fantastic. So that says something about your parents. That's really interesting that they don't get upset that you actually pick apart something and then it's broken. It's just, wow, you, you found, you learned something. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting quite nervous. Just the fact that you're saying that makes me you know, nervous about the fact that God, if mine started doing that, I, I don't know what I'd do really. Um, but that, that, that's the whole fear of putting back together again, I guess. And my, maybe my ability to fix it. Oh. Well, you have to also remember that my parents, when I was a child, we had just fled a war and lost everything. So things were not yeah. important to them. <laughs> things were just things. Yeah. Uh, I think they came to the yeah. conclusion 
in that stage of their life. Uh, so things could be replaced. They had already replaced everything mm. they could replace a remote control. Well, that's really interesting. Wow. So that mindset then brought you sort of where you are today when you, I, I see you experimenting with stuff in healthcare and I see you, sometimes I've seen posts on LinkedIn where you actually, you have this problem and you, you go, you go scourging in boxes looking for old tech that you can use in this experiment because you're just trying stuff out. And it's like, you're allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's why I was hired, uh, because I had this trouble of becoming hired. 320 people said no to me when I was looking for a job. They didn't even want an interview with me because I have a very different skill set. I'm trained in cognitive neuroscience and medicine, but I also did a lot of prototyping and I have a lot of tech skills that aren't validated anywhere because I haven't taken any courses that give me a stamp on it. So my former boss saw, uh, initially said no to me, actually, but then he, of mm. curiosity, went to a link on my CV and saw prototypes. And he said, if you can scavenge things for fun, why not scavenge things here <laughs> and try to save us some money and do something in psychiatry? So I was never given it for the first two years. I wasn't given any budget. I had no money. I just had to prove that I could do with what I had, which I had been doing all of my life. Well, it's, it's a fascinating conundrum there that when you're working with innovative, innovative um, situations or innovation, then you haven't got any track record because you're innovating and you've been a pioneer. So someone eventually has to take the leap of faith and, and give you the chance. Yeah, and very few people do. Um, and I understand that because you, when you put money and effort on someone, you want them to have validated skills. But at the same time, you lose a lot of people who might be even more qualified that don't have validated skills, but a lot, a lot of knowledge. So the way we see skill sets in workplace today, I hope really will change. Not just looking at someone's CV, but looking at someone's GitHub library or looking at someone's homepage and their prototypes and thinking, mm. is this person the right person for organization, not just their diploma? Right. And that to me, I'm going to try a really <laughs> nice segue here. That to me, <laughs> is a way of changing perspective and of helping people see things through another person's eyes and seeing value in the things that you don't see value in today. And something that can help in doing that is VR. <laughs> VR is what you seem to be working with most, but give us an example of what I knew. I know you're working with tons of stuff constantly, it seems, but what, what are you mostly passionate about and what are you mostly working on? The VR is definitely one of those things that I'm very, very passionate about because it's such an amazing tool. It's not just a tool for uh, education, it's a tool for empathy, it's a tool for um, treatment strategies in psychiatry, for training in medicine. It's such an um, eye-opener, uh, literally. <laughs> a lot of people, uh, both in terms of what they could learn and also what they can experience, which is really rare. I mean, in, in psychosis treatment, 
in what world will we be able to recreate an auditory and visual hallucination uh, precisely as another person sees it so that you can make it tangible for someone with psychosis that that has not been possible before we are showing the untang- so that's, that's a situation where you've you've you made you're making a, a individual's um condition um, a shareable experience yes. through the use of vr yeah precisely and that, that then of course allows i guess enables understanding and and the other people to be more compassionate and empathetic about the world that 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 person's having to live with yes and even if you don't become the slightest empathetic um after the experience you will at least objectively know how this person views their hallucination what type how it acts why the person acts in relation to it so you also get a sort of objective version of their behavior towards this towards this Mm. condition that they have So there really, I mean, there is really some amazing work being done in healthcare when it comes to virtual reality. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of what's going on. So give us some examples of what, what's been going on for the past 10 years. Well, uh, a lot. Uh, thanks to the commer- commercialization of VR headsets. When I started looking into it back in 2012, then um, Oculus was just a sort of thought idea Kickstarter, uh, it wasn't out in the market and the headsets that were on the market were extremely expensive. So you had to have a very rich lab to afford a graphics card. If you guys remember the 80,000 crown graphics card that now costs 600 crowns. And so when Oculus came, it revolutionized the way we could implement these things in clinics and do research on them. And there's everything. There isn't a diagnosis now where VR hasn't been tested clinically, a proper clinical trial. Um, And if you look at sort of when we started publishing articles about virtual reality, in psychiatry and in medicine, it was in the 1960s already. So there was this around 2013, there was this exponential boom (laughs) from maybe uh, four or 500 articles to 12, 20, 30,000 articles being published each year about this Mm. subject in science. Not, uh, Not to speak about all the things we don't hear that happen in everyday clinics. Right. So I saw this video of you uh, on stage and you were showing another video of you uh, trying on a VR headset uh, going through a palliative care hospital where, where you uh, at first struggled to understand who you were, but you were, uh, you were deaf and you understood that you were supposed to help these people uh, pass on. And then you entered with an elderly person and then there was this room where you entered and you realized, well, there's a child in here in this hospital bed. And it, there was, it was so powerful and it made me start to cry as you started to cry. Because, and that, that sort of, for me, was the ultimate example of, wow, what a powerful tool, but also what a, what a risk, what a, 
there must be so much care put into understanding how people react when they come into these worlds and how you take care of them when they are really, really emotionally attached or impacted by, by, by what's going on. Yeah, it definitely was sort of um, one of the most emotional experiences I've had. I, it's really hard crying inside of a VR headset and I've done it so <laughs> many times because things are so impactful there because you get to experience things you are not prepared for. Like in there, I learned a lot about myself. I always, I've worked in geriatrics for a very long time and done research on Alzheimer's and cognitive aging. So I met a lot of elderly and I'm passionate about um, elder care, about seeing, um, about removing ageism, about researching topics that are important for the elderly. So when I came there and I was so willing to take their hand and help them move on, but not the child, I was surprised by myself. Like, why was I okay with that? Why didn't I say no to death when it asked me to take the hand of the elderly woman and said, no, I'm not going to do that to her and her family. It just felt like, oh, okay, you want me to do that? I'm going to do that but not for the child that I refused. Mm -hmm. So it was like an emotional experience even after, like facing yeah. myself like, oh, oh, you're one of the people that I don't like. <laughs> you cannot, <laughs> you, you should, that, that's not how you should think and not how you sh should have acted. Mm -hmm. um, so it was extremely interesting. And then I realized uh, like uh, you say, Per, it's really scary what if I put someone in a really bad experience that traumatizes them, that's never going to yeah. be good for them. When I watched that, that video, and it's incredible to see the emotional response to the virtual world. But I started to think about how for decades we've, we've been hearing how computer games don't affect us, don't impact our behavior and so on. It's not, it's not harmful playing games. And yet we're, you know, we see how you're using VR to stimulate a, a, a response. You're using the VR to, to treat people for emotional conditions and so on. It kind of, this, this, is, this is the opposite. The VR is uh, affecting who, you know, your, your emotional response and behavior. It really is because you are engaging senses you aren't, when you are gaming with just a console in 2D. There's quite a lot of research. I had a um, bachelor student uh, look at how we are affected, like for example, horror in 2 and 3D. And of course mm. it was an effect of the 3D because you're using your hands in this world, you're using your body, you're using a 360 sort of a movement and six degrees of freedom so you are engaged in the world in a you're not a silent observer so it tricks your brain literally to think that you are not in control while in a video game you know you are in control <laughs> yeah yeah, I guess it's related to the the, um, the the moment you reach in in your development when you become self-aware that you know from like was it two or three years old you can you know the difference between something on a screen and something in real life but with vr it's it's not the screen versus um reality because you're so submersed 
it is such a strange phenomenon because I've, I had to learn over time as well when I let, let colleagues try that I have to stand next to them if we're in experiences that can um, trick their brain that it's a height or things that can um, disrupt their balance because I w was putting people up in a high building so they could see the height and be oh. a simulator. And some people are like, they would lose all controls of <laughs> control of their legs and fall on the floor. <laughs> and I was shocked yeah. that it would so instantaneous and they were shocked that they couldn't control their brain and their body to think that they, there was an actual floor underneath them. So yeah. I now, a days I stand and I hold people in their hand like I'm here <laughs> so I can rip off their headset or uh, catch them when they fall. Uh, and there was something I wouldn't have even thought it would be that immersive. Mm. Yeah, I remember the first time I did is that the, the beam walking VR example it was on the Oculus and you, you have to walk out of a building on the beam. It's it's so weird when you you fall off and you and you don't hit the ground <laughs> because because you know you're you're actually on the ground already but you you all your stimuli are saying you're falling you're falling. Yeah. Wow, I mean, but that really puts attention to the fact that you really have to be careful when you conduct these experiments because they are manipulating perception of reality. Uh, so, so what, what care? So if, I mean, if you want to get into VR now, what, what type of problem spaces are, do you want to attack? But also how do you make sure that you conduct your experiments in a safe way? There are a lot of difficulties. For example, oculation is still a problem when you're working both with VR and AR, you can walk through things, um, still, which makes it feel less real. Um, you have this disadvantages when it comes to moving around because you can bump into things. Um, and it's not really designed for people with functional variations. So uh, I don't say disability because we all have disability, <laughs> but we have functional variations. And someone who is in a wheelchair is still um, far from included when it comes to it's becoming better, but it, when, when worlds and games and treatments are designed, they, they often think, think standing or sitting and not people in wheelchairs. They are, um, uh, the coloration of the worlds often don't uh, take um, into account colorblindness. There is uh, quite a lot of these small aspects that you have to think of when you work in healthcare that you might not think of when you work in commercial gaming, but most games come from commercial uh, enterprises. So we have to sort of um, build ourselves or adapt quite a lot to make sure that it's inclusive and accessible to all of our patients when we work there. And how we make it right. safe is that we do a lot, a lot of screening um, to see which aspects uh, of our needs does this fulfill. And we also work with companies, startups that work in the VR, AR scene. And from the start, when we learn that they're building something, we ask, you, do you want some free labor? <laughs> do you want our staff mm -hmm. as your research and development section? Uh, because we want to use your products in the future, but 
there are there are some things that you are doing that we are not happy with. Could we work together to improve them, to make it more accessible? So that's how we build it. That's wonderful. It's too bad it has to be free when you want to make something accessible as usual, but. <laughs> yeah, well, it's never actually free. We give them our work time, but we also gain a lot back because we do research mm -hmm. on these things and we are a university hospital. So we, we gain from collaborating. Uh, we make them make better products. They make us publish more. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I meant that they actually get free labor, but you're right that it benefits the end users in the end in that you come with the insights that are, that make available this technology to more people. I was wondering though, with the, with now with so much talk of meta metaverses and, and when we have, um, well, Facebook already on the, the Oculus and, and, um, are really trying to make the move into the, the metaverse and the VR worlds. Um, how, how can we ensure that the, the I suppose the medical side or the human side of, of VR is, I'm going to say winner. I mean, that's not the right word to use, but I, 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 don't want, I don't want what you work with to be drowned in maybe privacy concerns and manipulation and, and overreach from, from companies that are as large as Facebook. Is, is, is there anything we can do to make sure we end up on the right side for this, for the good of humanity? That, that is one of the biggest problems we've had is because the commercialized headsets, um, the cheapest, most available, highly functioning one for us has been Oculus Quest that has required us to have a Facebook account. And that does not work. And they have started thinking about Facebook enterprise, but still that is patient data ending up in their, um, in their possession. So we have been looking at other alternatives and use other alternatives, um, but it's still sort of a privacy issue because most of these things come from companies that have and do and use data for their own purposes and for third parties. And Oculus was our biggest headache uh, two years ago, especially when they announced that they wanted to move more towards uh, each headset being connected to an account. So we made some fake accounts, uh, but they get blocked easily because they're smart. They know uh, that this is, uh, this is someone trying to get around the system. So my personal account has been logged into most of the um, headsets, which means that I'm giving up my privacy for everyone else's privacy, and that's not optimal either. So that, that's a huge concern that we have. And uh, why I'm hoping that future generations of physioneers, <laughs> physician engineers, will start building hardware as well that can be um, marked as medical equipment when it comes to virtual reality, so that we can also not only have software, but hardware that we are in control of when it comes to cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. I mean, this must be one of the, the, 
I'm going to say few, but it feels like it's one of the few situations where um, the medical equipment hasn't kind of come first. That you that you like you say that it isn't actually marked as medical equipment and and tagged as medical equipment. This is commercial equipment that's coming in to your world via that way, which is quite unusual. It feels it is really unusual and poses a lot of problems because. I empty my bank account almost every month because I have to buy the equipment for the hospital because it's really hard to get hold of the traditional ways of getting it to the hospital. Um, it's also oh, yeah, uh, that all, uh, all kinds of equipment that has to do with VR, AR, whether it's a HTC Vive or whether it's Oculus or whether it's a Pico Neo VR or anything, uh, I have to order it and pay up front and then be reimbursed, which is really hard for my economy, but it's what I have to do. So another another aspect of my privacy being uh, shut down for the sake of this working, because it's not tagged uh, as medical equipment, thus the hospital does not have a routine for it. And plus safety issues, for example, to test it, is it safe for psychiatric patients who are suicidal? I had to hang myself uh, from an Oculus Go to test which weight it breaks on to know if it's safe to give to a patient in inpatient care. So I had to test that what weight does it break if I hang myself? Because that's something that a commercial entity does not have to think about. It's not in their job description to see is this safe for a suicidal patient. Well, it's my primary mission to make sure it's safe. If it had been a technical device that is made for the hospital or a medical device, it would have had in its specification to have that as a safety issue, having cardboards in certain ways and lengths of the uh, of the straps so they couldn't be used but it's not mm. so I've had to go from the start sort of looking at what the medical directory of uh, the things that are registered there and see what does it require for it to be safe just mm. to because I don't want any catastrophes happening while it's being used mm. So that's a huge so, problem. Yeah, you're self-regulating. You're having to do the you're having to do the whole uh, approval regulatory regulatory process yourself um, for these things. Yes, because that's mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, again, it's like you're. It's again with you picking apart that remote control as a child. You're actually now you're picking apart the system and yeah. and finding ways around bureaucracy, uh, and that is really really fantastic. I, I'm I'm so impressed. Well, it's not, it's not easy and it's many, many times I've thought, is it worth it? Is this worth it? Because tomorrow I'm going to have to redo all of this again when the next headset comes, mm. because next headset come, comes very quickly. So, but I see when it's in the hands of a patient, how much it means to them. So it's sort of, okay, you're not doing this for nothing. And one day someone might listen to you and make this <laughs> a part of medical equipment. Wow. So the outcome makes it worth it. Definitely. Thank you so much, Almira. This has been fantastic.
there's so so much to unpack for me in this interview, and it, I mean, I love this when we go into an interview and don't really know all the things we're going to talk about. And one of the things was uh, just this thing with children picking things apart, which makes you think, well, how would I react in that situation with my children? I'm not sure I would be as understanding. No, and I said that in the interview. I, I straight yeah. away made me feel anxious the thought of you know my mm-hmm. kids pulling stuff apart and yeah. and and that was oh that's one of the best or nicest privilege checks someone has ever done to me um was was her yeah. response to me and and mm-hmm. you know makes you give, have another perspective on things when you you hear someone say well you know we fled a war a war torn country and left everything behind so mm-hmm. you know pulling stuff apart what the hell doesn't matter and, you know, realize how privileged you are to have all these things and be so precious over them that you don't want your kids to pull them apart um, because you're worried about the time and cost of replacing them. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Which made me reflect so much on, on on the people around her who have supported her way of doing things. So first her parents and, and then the person who hired her. I mean, she's obviously struggled and met so many obstacles and dead ends. But when she finally has someone believe in her who gives her the freedom to act and do things in her way she works wonders and she she's take she's taking on her own a lot of the huge leaps forward in in scientific understanding of the benefits and dangers of vr when it comes to to well-being Mm. it's really really impressive yeah uh, and i think this yeah i find the 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 therapy the therapy that's opened up um the possibilities are really, really impressive. That the, the um, you can the speed of treatment and effectiveness of treatment using VR seems to be really quite powerful. Right, and that power is also making me feel a bit worried and concerned about the fact that Almira is doing all these experiments and tests in a research environment where she's taking care of, of the patients and and following ethical codes. And with the, in, in, in the other aspect is that in the commercial world, we're just throwing out this technology. And what Elmira's work is showing is how powerful it is in affecting people. I especially, I, I caught on to how well, when people put on this for the first time, they essentially fall down straight away because they are so immersed in it within seconds. That is yeah. hugely powerful. Yeah, I mean, you do. When it's you, you, you straight away, you can feel dizzy. You can, mm. you can be confused by the fact that you mm. fall, but don't crash at the bottom or whatever and you you don't bump into things that come towards you or you walk towards rather it's you realize when you're using vr about how yeah okay you 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 the the self-conscious you understands it's not a real world because mm. you've put a headset on there's a there's a physical aspect to get you in mm. the world that i suppose you, you are very much aware this isn't your real reality but yet there is stuff going on in your head at, at another level yeah. Which doesn't understand this isn't the real world. Your balance is thrown off. You kind of, you know, you're, you're, well, the fact that she can do therapy or people can do therapy with this kind of um, equipment tells you that stuff goes on at a deeper level in your brain when you're submersed in VR. That is exactly. closer to reality. Right. So I, I'm figuring we need more of the type of research that Amira is doing uh, before we like set this technology free. Uh, and say that, well, th- this is safe to use for everybody. 
But it already is for, it already is out there. I mean, this is the the that I know. paradox that <laughs> what's enabling her to do so much exactly. research now is the yeah. as you said the the cheapness and quality mm. of the VR headsets that are available now as consumer items. Mm. Are, are, have come on so much. I mean, it's such a leap forward in this last few years of what's available and the power of the things that are available. Mm. Um, so, yeah, now there's more there's more VR hours being spent per day on the planet than at any time ever before. Right. Um, and we don't know the full effect of that. Like we alluded to in the, or we talked about in the interview about the, the research that's gone on for 30 plus years about effect of gaming, how many hours gaming and the, the social effects, of, uh, the, the behavioral aspects of, of gaming and children. And that's been a very contentious thing for decades. Um, this is another thing, another exactly. aspect of this, of gaming. And and clearly we're, we, we can't argue there's no, um, there's no effects of, of VR gaming when we're using VR to uh, as a therapeutical medical tool yeah, to create effects. Yeah, so so this, mm. it's it's um you know it's a non-argument. It does affect. Mm. So the question is how much and in what ways and how how do we make sure we don't um, end up causing the wrong effects or yeah. um, un- or subconsciously affecting people yeah. unconsciously. So in, in that sense, actually. What how she's doing her work when when she's contacting these companies and asking, well, can we be some free workers on your team? That is the way forward, uh, currently at least, for ensuring that it's not harming as much as it could because they actually do that type of testing for the companies. Yeah, as they're developing it. They do. I mean, I, I do. I do feel uneasy though about you know at the moment the the, the biggest manufacturer of uh, VR headsets. Is Oculus, which is Facebook, yeah, and we have Facebook then as both the manufacturer and gatekeeper of of what is effectively unregulated medical equipment, right? And that yeah. sounds that sounds quite scary. Um, yeah. But I don't want to lose. I don't. I don't want to lose out on this thing because there's there's clearly some really really good benefits from it. Yeah. So uh, let's hope somebody listens to this show and actually takes Almira up on her challenge to make some of this hardware uh, not connected to privacy-sensitive uh, accounts. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just just that whole thing she mentioned about having, like, enterprise versions. I mean, the fact that you, know, you can't buy VR headsets as a medical piece of equipment, which is, which yeah. is kind of crazy, I guess. Yeah. Um, someone should be jumping on that chance. Exactly. So I think I already know what you have picked as the suggested episode for listening to next, uh, because you quoted Boone in in our intro. Yeah, it seems to make complete sense that um, what we should do now is go off and listen to episode 186, which was when we talked um, about augmented reality um, with Boone Sheridan back in 2018. Um, and we touched on there a lot of the useful uh, ways in which um, augmented reality can um, be applied. and. As I said in the intro, Boone encouraged us to look into the wonderful things that can be done with VR, which hopefully we've done a bit today. And if you'd like to contribute to funding or producing a UX podcast, then visit uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.
bad, right? I went on a VR roller coaster ride while eating an apple. Okay, a VR roller coaster ride while eating an apple. Yeah, it shook me to the core. <laughs> it's, it's just so bad.